Happy New Year, and welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. We have an excellent show for you this week. The last one I'm recording in 2022 and the first one you're going to hear in 2023. We're going to talk to our expert Yellowstone professor, Adam Hirschfelder, who is here to talk about the new sequel, prequel, mequel to Yellowstone 1923, starring Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren, now airing on Paramount Products. And we're also going to talk to, right now, Stephen Garrett, our chief film critic, about two movies, one of which had a brief theatrical release and now lives on Netflix. It's Glass Onion, the sequel to Knives Out. And then we're going to talk to him about the horrific new film from filmmaker Damien Chazelle Babylon, which his name is not Chazelle Babylon, it's Damien Chazelle's Babylon, a uh, terrible retelling of the singing in the rain myth, basically, without any music or fun. I have very strong opinions about this movie, if you can't tell, and Stephen will be along presently to talk to me about it. I wanted to say a brief special hello to our listeners in Sweden, which has recently chosen us as one of its top entertainment podcasts, listener-wise, uh, for 2022, and we thank you for that, and we hope that you enjoy this episode and can relate to what we're talking about. Glass Onion, in particular, has broad international appeal. I'm not sure that... Um, 1923 is really uh, anything but an American product, but a very popular one, and everyone of any background in any country at any time would hate Babylon. Anyway, we'll be right back to talk about it with Stephen Garrett. Stephen Garrett is back from Christmas and ready for the new year, and Santa left him a, a big lump of coal uh, with one of the movies we're going to be talking about, not a decent like gift, a nice nice sweater or a electronic set uh, with the other one we're going to start with the with the the naughty not the naughty the nice the nice movie that we we both watched over the holidays and that is glass onion which is ryan johnson's very very expensive sequel to knives out which i don't feel i don't see why knives out shouldn't get a sequel but but uh, why why something this expensive? I mean, th- this movie is just so over the top, ridiculous. My God, hello, Steve. It's crazy. Hello, yeah. thank yeah. you for having me. Yes, always. Yeah, uh, you know, I uh, it's weird, you know, because there's this announcement that Netflix made that they bought two Knives Out sequels. Netflix did for for Ryan Johnson as producer and and I guess uh, Daniel Craig for four hundred and sixty nine million dollars. Now, is that just cash, hard cash pushed against? pushed across the table to them just to show up for work. And then there's the budget for the production. Like, I don't, know. From, I don't know. Or is it from this? I don't know. I don't know. But all, all I know is that suddenly like, you know, knives out was like a, a, a riff, a modern riff on the whodunit genre. But suddenly now we have the Benoit Blanc, which is Daniel Craig's character, the Den- Benoit Blanc expanded universe. Apparently he's right. gay. He's gay. And he lives with Hugh Grant. And what appears to be Manhattan, I thought he was from Louisiana, but he he's certainly living in New York City. And, you know, the movie very, very oddly takes place in May of 2020. So it's kind of a COVID movie, like characters are wearing masks. There's a there's a there's a vaccination gag. Um, There's a bunch of like kind of they must have shot it during COVID. There's no other uh, explanation as to why you would have to make this. 
a COVID uh, movie, especially because once they get to the private island where almost all the action takes place, um, it doesn't really come into play, right? They're all, they're in their bubble, their mystery bubble. Exactly. They're in a mystery bubble. Yeah. On the private island. Yeah. So the the premise basically is that um, Edward Norton plays an eccentric billionaire a la Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, whoever, and he invites a bunch of, um, I thought they were old college friends, but they're just like a bunch of douchey people who met at a bar. Right. And then they all get to, and then they all become rich and famous thanks to his patronage somehow. And then they get together on this island and he, he, he play, it's like a weekend murder mystery getaway on his Greek island. But of course, it turns into actual murder. That's murder, yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, and Janelle Monet plays this woman, uh, Andy Brand, who is the ostensible, I guess, business partner of uh, Edward Norton's, uh, who is, uh, you know, kind of a douche, like you said. He's kind of a douchey guy, Miles Braun. And he's a billionaire, and he started this large tech company with uh, Janelle Monet's character. And um, But there were some nefarious goings-on that happened and some stealing of intellectual property. And then yeah. uh, a lot of the people, apparently, I mean, there's a great line where, uh, you know, Janelle Monet basically says, you know, you're all sucking on Miles Braun's titties, you know, golden titties. Um, so they each have a reason to uh, basically to to uh, keep in Edward Orton's good graces, Miles Braun's good graces, but they're also, they have just as much reason to kill him, too. Right. All right, so uh, this is Glass Onion, and as is now the way on the Book and Film Globe podcast, let's listen to a little clip from Glass Onion before Stephen and I resume our review. I've invited you all to my island. Hi! Because tonight, a murder will be committed. My murder. Once you're dead... Will we still be able to talk to you? Yeah, I'm not playing dead the whole weekend, dude. Well, this is truly delightful. Across the island, I've hidden clues. You will have to closely observe each other. If anyone can name the killer, that person wins our game. Any questions? <laughs> Allie Berry, uh, that has a kick. Oh my God, what happened? <laughs> Holy shit! Ladies and gentlemen, there's been a murder, and the killer is in plain sight. For at least one person, this is not a game. All right, well, that's Glass Onion, and, you know, your mileage may vary. I, You know, I personally found it an amusing uh, Christmas Eve distraction. You know, I wasn't a huge fan of the first Knives Out, Um I thought that it took itself actually a little more seriously than it should have, but you know, no one could say that glass onion takes itself seriously. There's, there are points where Daniel Craig basically like turns to the camera and is like, isn't this stupid? (laughs) I know that's true. It's very true. You know, I, I, you're right. The the first movie took itself a little bit more seriously and there's a little bit more pathless in there, but there's still the same agenda basically, which is, you know, rich people are kind of screwing over poor people and rich people are awful and craven and desperate, you know, and we'll do anything and we'll kowtow to anyone to keep the status quo so that they can keep their feet on the necks of the, the downtrodden. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, um, been, there's been some strange discourse around this movie on, on, on the Twitter, which I know you're not on. There are some people who just really despise it. And I don't know. I mean, I, I thought it was a perfectly acceptable piece of candy and there were some fun performances in it. You know, Dave, Dave Bautista 
really chews up the screen as a, a muscle-bound men's rights activist. I thought Kate Hudson, uh, who plays a, sort of a, a, fa- a stupid fashion uh, designer. Yeah, pretty she, Jay. She's hilarious. She was, she, was, she was really good, you know, and she hadn't, she hadn't really chewed up the screen in a movie like that in an awfully long time. And, you know, there were, uh, you know, Catherine Hahn and Leslie Odom Jr. were a little more subdued, but certainly, you know, they're, you know, they have strong screen presences and they didn't hurt anything, you know, and, and Dan, Benoit Blanc is just a ridiculous character. Daniel Craig's act <laughs> is terrible. And you, you know, your mileage, may, my, there's a lot of Janelle Monae in the movie and your mileage may vary. Either it's a, either you think that's, a, you know, kind of a overwrought hammy performance. But I've seen some people um, throwing her out there as a possible uh, best supporting actor Oscar. No, no. Um, which seems highly unlikely uh, uh, given that her accent is just as bad as Daniel Craig's. Uh, and then Edward Norton, uh, d- you know, doesn't, uh, doesn't do his reputation any harm here either. He's, he, he uh, plays that part really well. I think, I don't know. I mean, it, it's fun. And I also like the, the sort of the, there's a mysterious um, stoner, <laughs> on the island, uh, Daryl, Daryl, who just keeps popping into the scene. So there's like there's all this mythology around uh, Knives Out. You know, it's like it's like um, that. I didn't really expect Ryan Johnson to build on. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I think you calling it a piece of candy is exactly right. I don't think Ryan Johnson even thinks this is like a deep piece of uh, you know our artistic statement about our, our our way of life or our society right now. I, I think he. He makes puzzle movies and he loves puzzle movies and, you know, he wants you to enjoy them as well. I think there's a novelty that I kind of got off on with uh, Knives Out and also with Glass Onion about, you know, like you're saying, this whole kind of antiquated idea of the whodunit, you know, which he himself wanted to kind of bring back with, um, you know, kind of as an homage to Agatha Christie, but also an homage to the parodies of Agatha Christie's that came out. Like, what was it? Murder by Death, things like that. Murder by by Death, especially in Clue. Clue, of course. Yeah, and Clue, you know. Yeah, those those are much better than the actual whodunits, and this is sort of a straddles the line between the two of them. And I will say, there's two very. I, I guess I shouldn't ruin the sort of the uh, the jokes, the celebrity jokes about some celebrity endorsed products. But those are my my favorite uh, parts of the movie. <laughs> well, you and know, it, I was going to mention that you know, as also a sort of you know tipping your hand and kind of showing like there's no there there. I mean, he he does joke. I mean, this is called Glass Onion, which of course you know peeled the layers, and there's there's really nothing in the middle and. You know, uh, Benoit Blanc even says as much, you know, during the movie that this is so idiotic, so stupid. But I think there is, you know, in certain ways, I think this is a bigger, better, more fun movie. But I think it is also a more superficial movie. And I think those celebrity endorsements you mentioned is a kind of a gimmicky thing you kind of throw in there as a sort of misdirect to say, oh, yeah, by the way, this movie is really not as 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 interesting as the previous one. You know, I mean, I hope he can. He, you know, he's talked about making more movies with Daniel Craig and continuing the series. I, I hope they can come up with enough originality and, and enough novelty in the way that they construct the mysteries to keep it going. Because the novelty stuff, as fun as it was, it was a bit of a novelty. You know? It was very close in tone and in vibe to like a live action Scooby Doo movie. Right, exactly. You know, when it comes down to it, it was- which is not bad. I mean, no. I like Scooby Doo. Yeah, and the live action Scooby Doo is even even at least for the first one even wasn't really that bad. So good time, yeah, good time. It's yeah. So all right, so let's let's switch gears away from a movie that you know was insubstantial but that we kind of liked to Damien Chazelle's Babylon, which you know I think you liked it more than I did, but I consider this film to be not only one of the worst films 
of the year, but to be possibly one of the worst films ever made. Whoa, whoa. Absolutely insane. When I realized at the end, when they when when, when the main character, who was a cipher to say the least, um, yeah. was in the theater watching Singing in the Rain in 1952 and crying, and I realized that throughout the movie, Damien Chazelle had planted these um, Easter eggs, some of them more obvious than others, about Singing in the Rain, which is universally considered one of the greatest movies ever made. You know, even in the sight and sound poll, put it, it still puts it in the top ten. Everyone loves yeah. Singing in the Rain. It just, it's just a perfect Hollywood film. Um, and, you know, the quintessential movie musical. He was putting Easter eggs all throughout the movie, like little little bits of like dark versions of things that are in Singing in the Rain. And then he's in there watching it and the the lighter versions that were actually dark when he lived through them in the golden age of silent movies make him cry. And I'm like, screw this. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. So pretentious. Like, come on. Please, please, please deconstruct Singing in the Rain in a, in, in a torrent of elephant shit. No, it's bad. You know, it's a movie of, of uh, set pieces and moments, and he's clearly a director who's fallen, like, far down the rabbit hole of his own ideas about, like, this scene is going to be amazing, and we can direct the hell out of this one scene. I'm going to take 15 minutes to do this one scene where, you know, they're struggling with the sound equipment on a soundstage, you know, which I'm sure you felt interminable. I thought it was absolutely just endlessly interminable and not it didn't develop any character. It didn't develop any like part of the story aside from just, no, like, just mean. stupid and mean. It was stupid and mean. I yeah, thought. it ends up with like some dead guy suffocating in the, you know, like the camera booth. Yeah. Spoiler. But um, no, I mean, he just he became so in love and enamored with these moments and these milking these set pieces that he doesn't develop the characters. He doesn't develop this guy, Manny Torres, who it is a kind of on paper, kind of an interesting character. This guy, Diego Calva plays, you know, as this kind of film assistant who goes up the ranks and becomes an executive and kind of a director and producer and handler. And then inexplicably suddenly confesses his love for the starlet who's played by Margot Robbie. Uh, Robbie, who uh, he, he heretofore has never really confessed any sort of like amorous longings for. Well, and also you know, she's, just, an, she's an idiot and a monster. Yeah, she is an idiot and a monster too on top of it. Yeah, exactly. You know? I mean, she has so, no, redeeming, no redeeming characteristics whatsoever. The, to me, the most sympathetic character in the movie was the aging movie star played by Brad Pitt, who, yeah. who at least, at least occasionally, Chazelle would like quiet the sound down around and allow him to like have conversations people act and have conversations with people the screaming soundtrack that the frenetic action would 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 come to a halt from time to time you know he has a scene where gene smart plays like a head of hopper style gossip columnist just you know screen you know a one of those like a photo photo play journalist photo play, yeah sort of pre head of hopper but that 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 type of Person and uh, you know he had there's a there's a scene where she sort of you know I mean it's an obvious truth that we've all heard before but it's like okay um, she kind of tells him how things are going to go now that his career is on the decline and her career is on the decline and 
at least there's a conversation and it's quiet and there's no music and it's just two people talking. And I could, appre- I could appreciate that. So before Stephen and I go any deeper into the nightmare that is uh, Damien Chazelle's Babylon, and I refuse to just say Babylon. I'm going to attach this director's name to it uh, until the day I die. Let's, let's, let's hear a clip from this, this film. You know what the signs on all the doors read? No actors or dogs allowed. I changed that. Good morning. Good job for you. I'll do anything. That's the cocksucker they said to screw us. Yeah! That bitch is stealing the scene right from my mimi. She's icing her nipples so they perk up through her dress. I ain't icing my nipples. This is natural. What do you say we come in for my close-up now? So that's a little taste of the screaming trumpet sound. And, you know, Javon Adepo plays this, this Louis Armstrong-ish trumpet player who, like, you know, spends a lot of time just, like, pretending to play the trumpet. He doesn't have a lot of lines. No. A lot of scenes of him pretending to play the trumpet and then, then looking upset because people are racist against him, which they probably would have been, you know, in reality. But there's not, he's not really a character there. He doesn't seem to have a family or friends or anything. He just... He's just a black guy who plays the trumpet, um, but that's not really the pro- he's not really the problem with the movie. The, the you know you talked about this in your review. Like this movie is sick in the head. <laughs> Did what? I say sick in the head? I mean, it's it's I, I think it's so distracted by its own shiny objects and it's so preoccupied with. The flash and sizzle. I mean, there's this opening scene that pre-credits, a pre-opening <laughs> title scene that's 45 minutes long or something, right? Yeah. And it's a party scene that's complete debauchery, which is a lot of fun, but also kind of exhausting. And you just it's you a little bit over the top, too. It's like it's like a really, little bit. Really like 40 people having public anal sex in a house. <laughs> well, well, I mean, it's just a you know, It's like there's you know, dwarfs spewing fake, fake sperm with off a dick. Jumping on a, a pogo, pogo stick that looks like a penis. You know. Yeah, it's like there's barf and piss and shit. And, you know, and then that, that last that last montage where um, um, oh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Toby McGuire takes what's-his-name into a dungeon. You know, after huffing ether, uh, I mean, what is it's like, it's like John Waters, but but stripped of of all of its. You know, it it takes like what used to be sort of uh, transgressive and turns it into this like turgid. I don't. Know, it's just terrible. It's horrible to watch. Oh, it's just dull. Because it, it doesn't develop any characters, right? I mean, that's the core of it. That's the root of. There's some interesting ideas for characters that are either half developed or not developed at all, you know? Uh, He's so distracted by everything else. He's not telling a story. He feels too coked up, the whole thing. It is. Three uh, hours long. I mean, you know, after- right. There's so much freaking cocaine in this movie. I mean, (laughs) just just mountains of it. I mean, there's not not this much cocaine in Narcos, the TV show. Which is literally about the cocaine trade. There's, there's like that has that, that show has half the amount of cocaine, and I'm just like, come on, just do a little cocaine. No one no even smokes. No one even smokes a joint. No, no. I mean, and the thing is, it's I, I I did have a ton of fun for the first half because I was kind of trusting, like, okay, this is going somewhere. He's clearly excited to show me this new scene and this new scene. Okay, where is this going? Wait a minute, is this really going where I'm thinking it's going? Oh my god, this is so bad. 
And I'm, I'm like telegraphing the endings, the tragic endings of these characters. You see them coming 100 miles away. Don't and then literally this guy is sitting and watching, singing in the rain. And then, you know, there's this ridiculous hooray for Hollywood montage where you're just like, what? Why are we watching shots from the Matrix and Avatar? Like, what? I was furious. What's happening? I was furious. So furious. It's, it's like, just no ending. He didn't know how to end it. And it's just such a punch. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's essentially the template for Boogie Nights. Yeah. That's no, just, it's singing in the rain and Boogie Nights. Beat, beat, beat for beat, more or less Boogie Nights. Uh, and then, but the, 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 the singing in the rain, Easter eggs, I'm just like, I don't know. I mean, was it really that awful <laughs> back in the day? You know, it's like, yeah, okay. You know, it's like, it's like, it's kind of like Kenneth Anger's Hollywood Babylon turned into a movie, but with the plot of Boogie Nights and with these weird, dark homages to Singing in the Rain. Who, who's the audience for this, Stephen? I mean, we love movies. I, I know you love movies. And I, love, I love movies. I love old movies. Well, and I love that, ter- that time period. There's a great book that came out called The Genius of the System that talks about you know, like the, the 1920s and the 1930s and how crazy the studio system was then. But it was also a factory, and there's also some, some brilliant movies that were made during that time. And the fact that you know his, his narrative, this film takes place, what, from 1926 to 1932, 34, you know, for, the, for the most part. Then the last 40 minutes is like a 20-year jump in, in logic. But we're really concentrating on that silent to, to sound transition. They make it look like, first of all, that one day outside where they're shooting, you know, the Vitagraph, like you know sound stage or it's not sound stage but it's a ranch they're all shooting outdoors i mean it, it's exhilarating it's enthralling to watch all that stuff but that seems more like a 1916 instead of 1926 sort of thing like by 1926 it kind of wised up they had sound stages they had some amazing cinematographers working they just they weren't they weren't hiring like you know uh derelicts to stab each other in a big sword bot maybe they were but that feels a lot more Wild West, a lot more like the early days of the, of the film industry. By 1926, it was still early, but it, it, it had developed to a certain extent. And that transition to sound, there are some amazing movies that were made. They, they weren't as sloppy and as, as you know, ham-fisted and you know, kind of left-footed as it makes it look. But again, know? if you want to watch a great movie about the transition from silent movies to sound, Singing in the Rain... Is sitting right there, yeah, and it has Donald O'Connor dancing on his head. It's not three hours. It's like a. It's not even three hours. It's like two hours and twenty minutes, which is the perfect length for something like this. Yeah, I I couldn't believe. I I mean, I could not believe it. I could not believe how bad this movie was. It's incredible. It's it's really it's disappointing. It's It's disappointing. You're disappointed. I'm appalled. It's a monument to uh, autorial overreach in the 21st century. It is Babylon, Damien Chazelle's Babylon. This is uh, Neil Pollock and Stephen Garrett's talking about movies. <laughs> we'll be back. Catchy. Almost as catchy as the title Babylon. So, well, I'm just going to, you know, we're going to end the year with a montage of you and I crying while watching movies. Dutton University is back in session. Yet another Yellowstone Universe show has debuted on Paramount Plus, brought to you by Taylor Sheridan, the uh, director, writer, and showrunner, and our in-house Yellowstone expert, 
Adam Hirschfelder is here to talk to me about 1923, the new show in the Yellowstone universe. Hello, Adam. <laughs> Good to be with you again, Neil. I guess I'd be an adjunct, adjunct professor. I think those are the only jobs, right, available in academe right now. Like, uh, I think I'm an adjunct yeah. professor of uh, Sheridanology. Yeah, you're an adjunct. <laughs> you are. You're an ad, you're an ad, a dutnology, dutnology. <laughs> Of Duttonology, yes, uh, and I think I, I think I need to unionize with my uh, fellow adjunct professors so we can get well, some more food. We offer food an aso- we, we offer an associate professorship in that, so maybe <laughs> maybe you can get tenure at at some point. But let's talk about 1923. Now, this you know it started off uh, Yellowstone started off in the present day, and then they dipped back into the 1880s, and now we have come into the 1920s, and yeah. we're, we're seeing the Dutton Ranch in you know, sort of its modern form. There's a house. Now and uh, there's there, there's there's some there's some range war going on and and you know what I find amazing about this is, you know obviously like Kevin Costner is the star of Yellowstone but I mean we're we're talking like serious Hollywood firepower with Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren he- heading up this cast. Yeah, I mean Sheridan is just incredibly you know up the ante just over the last couple of years. I mean yeah, I mean Kevin Costner as you know was already a big star but then to go to Harrison Ford this is like the first TV series that he's been on and Helen Mirren I mean this thing is like you know could be up with any film uh in America it's uh it's really impressive uh what this show and this entire universe has done and you know as I reflected there were three <laughs> three Yellowstone programs in all of 2021 uh which is amazing in 1923 being uh the last of them well, American, American TV, I've thought about this quite a bit, loves to tell the story of the American West, right? Like when we were kids, you probably recall the miniseries Centennial, sure. Centennial based on the James Mitchell novel. That was one of my favorite you know, 26 hours of Colorado history uh, there on TV. I loved that show. And then, of course, we had Lonesome Dove when we were teenagers or, or you know, young men. Uh, now, the, now we're old men. And, um, <laughs> and we, 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 we're in the, the 19... I would say we're in the 1953 phase of our yeah. of our, of our yes. and our own lives. Yeah, yeah. and of, of course, look, westerns helped build the importance of television and westerns in uh, telling the American story, both to around to the country, but also around the world. Have a long history, so you're you're definitely right. I mean, and that's obviously what Sheridan has tapped into here uh, with this entire saga. Um, you know, using Westerns to tell a story. And he's very interested in telling the story of the West. And uh, he's been very, you know, you know, clear about wanting to tell the story of the West. I think timing-wise, the program has also come at a good time when there's this, you know, broader discussion on what America is, where it came from, where it's going. So a lot of different stories that this are going on at the same time while he tells this kind of <laughs> increasingly complex story about the Dutton family. Yeah, I mean, my family. I guess my family would be this complex if you really looked into it. But I don't. I don't want to think about it so deeply. What I, what I find interesting, and you've touched on this before, and I know you have a, a lot of, uh, you know, you, you have family background and studying Native American history. But you know, this uh-huh. 1923 uh, goes deep into that. You know, they're, they're trying to tell the story of the uh, Indian boarding schools, which is, you know, as someone who grew up in Arizona, I'm always fascinated by that. That you know. Yeah, and and. I'm surprised, you know, in, in some respects. I mean, look, Yellowstone, of course, has gotten all this attention from every, you know, <laughs> op-ed writer in America, most of, you know, the New York Times and so forth. But, you know, very little, I think, in the last few weeks on what, you know, Sheridan did in episode one and episode two about the uh, native boarding school history. 
really intense and made it a significant part of episode one and episode two of 1923. And I would almost say, you know, not overshadowed. I mean, Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren, but you went in expecting to, you know, see a little bit more of Ford and Mirren. And it's not, not instead, but equally, you have these really powerful scenes of, uh, of brutality at these schools, uh, particularly against uh, uh, focused on one young female student who's a descendant of somebody we meet in Yellowstone on the show many decades later. You mean a, a forebear. Yes, a forebear. Sorry, a forebear uh, of uh, Thomas Rainwater, who ends up uh, running the uh, reservation, the Broken Rock Reservation. That's part of the Yellowstone story. We meet a Tiana Rainwater uh, who was just beat and tortured uh, at the school. She's actually at a school in North Dakota um, and has a variety of conflicts as she tries to speak her native language, which she wasn't allowed to do as she you see these rituals that the nuns make uh, the native students go through with learning how to clean, how to wash kind of from a Western standpoint. And it's really brutal. It's really tough. And, you know, it's emotional and hard to watch. And I can't remember, and I've been looking around the number of times this story has been told from the fictional sense. Now we've gotten a little attention on the broader story this year, particularly in Canada and the Pope uh, coming out and talking about it. But like this, for the, it, it, at this type of level in a program with ha- Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren, I mean, this is uh, you know really significant, important stuff. I think, right? And you know, and, and in some sense, Sheridan is you know, there's there's from what I can get again, I haven't watched this. You're you are the Dutton uh, professor uh, of, of of the book and film globe uh, pop culture, so I haven't watched it. But there seems to be from the trailer, there seems to be some World War One action. You know, there's some great white. Great White Hunter and Kenya, Kenya stuff going on in the show, and you know it's really he's trying, he's just expanding his scope, and he's trying to tell the story of America. And you know, I just find it so funny that, and we we you know joke about this all the time, uh, and in our in our very deep private conversations that we have. But like the the idea that like liberal media is is convening focus <laughs> groups and, and, and other convivia. To try to understand what you know, his uh, which is just what is basically just a modern version <laughs> of the same story Hollywood has been telling for 120 years, to me, is just endlessly hilarious. It, it is. I mean, you know, the New York Times, you know, you know, has this new effort to have these ongoing focus groups uh, to get in touch with, I guess, you know, real America and all that kind of stuff. And one of them focuses on Yellowstone, and they get all these like Yellowstone, you know true believers and people who love the show and talking about it. And, you know, but the kids be able to say, yeah, I like how it talks about how families are real and complicated and it's authentic. Like it wasn't, it didn't really, you know, like there wasn't this like, you know, red meat for the partisan divide that you know people have really attached to this show. That's why I say, you know, it came at a good time when there's all this, you know, to use a terrible term, elite discourse on the divisions in American society, which has now become a, you know, culture in itself, culture of division that, you know, now there's so, so much on this one program and all of its offshoots on how it symbolizes all the divides in America and all this right. kind of and, stuff. And, and, and the people are saying stuff like, my uncle owns a ranch. <laughs> like, like, yeah, no, and they need to build it up as this show about divisions and all this kind of stuff. And I just was just finishing this piece in the BBC, which really just hits all the notes in the BBC copying from, uh, you know, the multiple New York Times op-eds and mentions their focus groups talking about this, that this symbolizes, you know, the divides in America and all this kind of, like it's gotten humorous at, at, at this point about 
all of these conversations about this show, which is interesting and appealing, but, you know, it's kind of a glorified Dallas put on, you know, this Western trope, which has, you know, been part of American media for a long time. Um, and, and sure, you know, I think the one thing is, yes, sure, it was popular in small towns and rural areas before it got, you know, popular around the country. But now it's like sets records every time it streams a new premiere. It's like, you know, popular television, you know, and it's, it's, it's now become this like cultural touch point which is uh and endlessly amusing uh the so serious so what is this cultural touch point let's listen to a clip from the 1923 t- trailer and then i'll be back with uh adam to sum up the importance of the taylor sheridan universe greed will be the thing that kills us all you see on the rainwater come with me you're no god, Jacob Dutton! You attack my family. It's gonna be the last thing you ever do. Oh, and that was a clip from 1923 starring Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren and a cast of thousands, of American thousands. Uh, it is... <laughs> It is our story. There's no Jews in the show, right, Adam? Just, we have, we have not we have not met any Jews yet. But I, you know, the you know the first two episodes, the first one was a little choppy. It kind of gave four or five different stories, and you really couldn't figure out kind of where this whole thing was headed. Episode two was better built on it. You know, like all shows, I thought one was just like a little scattered, almost like it was thrown together that they wanted to get it on before. Uh, Yellowstone ended uh, so they could build on the audience. No, two was better. I mean, look, hey, there, there could be a whole Jewish angle. There should be. There was a historic uh, Jewish population in Helena. So maybe they'll, we'll uh, get some of the, you know, Dutton's friends were some, you know, Jews. That would be good. But um, there's a lot to come in this show. I mean, this whole Africa thing and this beautiful, you know, views that Sheridan takes, you know, his cold crowd out to film out in Africa and where that's all going to fit. No one literally has any clue, just like we didn't know where who Harrison Ford was going to play in the show. No one's really quite clear what this Africa piece is. We know it's a Dutton uh, forebear who fought in World War One, and then, you know, a lot of you know, former soldiers, you know, go off to Africa and become, you know, headhunters and so forth and, and help, you know, protect um, safaris and stuff from wild animals. And it's touching upon that. But that story obviously has to evolve. So there's really a lot to come in 1923. At the same time, the mothership Yellowstone ends its first half of its, you know, season five uh, next week as well. So it's just a lot going on in the Sheridan uh, You can uh, cover it and connect it all in your PhD <laughs> With, with your forthcoming, we're watching you. We got we got our eye on you, Adam. We know that you're an, you're an up and coming Yellowstone uh, scholar, and we'll recommend you to the New York Times next symposium. It seems like the opportunity to write about and talk about Yellowstone is uh, is you know it's growing. I just you know I keep pitching it to the New York Times, but they never call me back. We always call you back. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you have found you have found your second career with us, and uh, we, we'll talk to you in 1943. <laughs> Let's hope there's a third prequel. I mean, yeah. if we're going to go on the Star Wars thing, there better be a third prequel. Yeah. All right. Adam Hirschfelder, thank you so much. Thank you, Neil. All right. Thanks, Adam. 1923 and Yellowstone will be airing fresh episodes in the first part of 2023, which is a has a three in it, so there should be a Yellowstone show called 2023, or maybe 2223. Maybe we'll be talking about Yellowstone in space coming soon. 
Also, thanks to Stephen Garrett for listening to me rant about Babylon, the Damien Chazelle movie, and rant a little bit less about Glass Onion, the pretty decent but not spectacular sequel to Knives Out. I am Neil Pollock. I'm the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We're here every week with excellent podcast content, and we publish articles on the website nearly every day. Thank you so much for listening and reading and watching and doing all the things that make being a consumer of media so much fun in the modern age. We'll talk to you soon. You can buy the books discussed on the Book and Film Globe podcast at The Book House, Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to the Bookhouse Milburn, M-I-L-L-B-U-R-N.com to shop online and support small independent booksellers. Or visit our actual physical site in Milburn, New Jersey, where you can buy books from all the authors featured on The Dark Word and the Book and Film Globe podcasts. TheBookhouseMilburn.com. <laughs>